When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're joined by William Dalrymple, acclaimed historian and author of The Anarchy. And he spoke to Kavita Pori, journalist and author of Partition Voices, who many of you will remember was on the podcast just last month. And together, they explored the history of the East India Company, looking at what lessons it can teach us about capitalism today. They also touched on topics such as how we remember the past and what should we do with controversial statues. It's a really fascinating conversation. And if you do enjoy it and want to dig a bit deeper into the history of the British in India, you can find links for both William and Kavita's books in the podcast description. Now, let's go to the episode. Hello, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared Plus event with me, Kavita Puri, and I am so delighted to introduce our guest tonight, William Dalrymple, all the way in the Highlands. I'd love to tell you a little bit about William. He is a distinguished historian, writer, and author of the very excellent Anarchy, The East India Company, Corporate Violence and the Pillage of an Empire. His books have won many awards and prizes, including the Duff Cooper Memorial Prize and the Wilson History Prize. And he's also the curator of Forgotten Masters, Indian Painting for the East India Company, the first UK exhibition works by Indian painters commissioned by East India Company officials in the late 18th and 19th centuries, which is currently on display in London's Wallace Collection. So, William, I'd like to begin, really. When we think of the Raj, we think of this 90-year period, which really is from 1858 to 1947. But in the centuries preceding that, the British were in India not as a national enterprise, as we're led to believe, but as a for-profit one. Why why has that been forgotten in the telling of our national narrative? It's very interesting, and, and you're quite right. The um, When people think of the British in India, the images that come to mind are Queen Victoria, Kipling, Curzon, perhaps some smiling Maharaja on a lawn on Simla playing croquet with an elephant in the background or some merchant ivory film with some lovely uh, memsab uh, willowing along a lawn in, uh, with a sort of parasol behind her. And, uh, and there are two problems with this. One is that the Raj proper, the period when the government controlled an Indian colony, was, as you said, only 90 years, 1858 to 1947. It's a blink in the eye of Indian history. But the British as a nation were involved in India in a very, in in a growing and and increasingly dominant fashion for 250 years before that, from about 1600, from the reign of Elizabeth I, up to the reign of Queen Victoria. And at that time, it wasn't the British government at all 
that was in, uh, in control. It was a, a corporation, a, a for-profit corporation run for no other purpose, as any corporation really is, uh, than to uh, enrich the investors and the shareholders. And this corporation that started off as a, a business trading in spices and, and then moved to being a, a business trading in textiles, suddenly in the mid-18th century militarised and conquered the richest empire on earth. It's one of the most unlikely stories in world history. And for the, for the period of that conquest, the, the corporation was based in one small London office. And at the time of the crucial battle of Plassey, that office was only five windows wide, withdrawn back from the street. Uh, and for a century after its founding, the head office only had 35 employees. And yet that five window building, 35 employees, commanded the greatest corporate coup in history, uh, the takeover of the richest empire in the world. And, and to me, that's a far more interesting, far more extraordinary, far more unlikely and certainly more untold story than the rather familiar tale of, uh, you know, Curzon and the Imperial Durbar and, and, and all that stuff we're used to seeing on telly with guys with, you know, empire building shorts and solar tobies striding around uh, beating up Indians. So uh, it, it's, it, it's an oddly forgotten period of history. And, and it's not just forgotten by accident. The British have a real problem with failing to come to terms with the nature of their empire in India. We still somehow love to believe that our empire was different from other empires, that we understand that the Belgians in the Congo were horribly brutal, cutting people's hands off. Of course, the Germans were worse, whether in uh, early on in East Africa or whether, you know, the, thir- the, the, the Third Reich is the, is the ultimate satanic empire but somehow we think our one was different and that there's maharajas smiling on the lawn in Simla and there's pretty girls in in tennis shorts and and all those other images somehow change the reality of empire but empire is never for the colonized it's never for those who are defeated in battle it is for the benefit of those who 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 wage war who defeat other nations then occupy their countries and this is this is a constant through history whether it's the romans in britain whether it's the vikings in 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 the dane law or whether it's the british in india in the 18th century well let's go back to 1599 and give us a sense of that story of how what began as a company to deal in silks and spices would by 1803 have defeated the Mughal Empire. Tell us some of those key points along the way. So this is the reign of Elizabeth I. England, because we're not talking Britain yet, there's no active union, so it's England on its own, is a relatively peripheral power on the edge of Europe. The rich countries are France, Spain, Italy, and increasingly Holland, which has just got its independence. And it is the Dutch that provoke the British into forming the East India Company because they send a successful expedition to the Spice Islands, the Moluccas, what we today call Indonesia, uh, the, the islands of, of Run and Java and Sumatra, uh, to buy spices directly from the producers. And the English merchants in London, who've got a very successful business going called the Levant Company, which buy the same spices through middlemen in places like Aleppo and Cairo and Venice, suddenly realise that they're going to be out of a job if they don't go direct to the producers too. And that's what happens. They, they, they found a company, one of the world's first corporations. There's a public subscription. There's a meeting in Moorgate Fields. The Lord Mayor turns up. The, 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 a lot of the aldermen of the city turn up. It's organised by the head of the Levant Company, a man called Customer Smythe. 
uh, who's in charge of the customs. And they meet in Moorgate Fields, which isn't a grubby tube station uh, in those days, but it is, uh, is actually, as its name implies, uh, it, its fields uh, surrounding the Founders Hall, which is a lovely sort of black and white t- half-timbered Tudor building. And in this meeting, lots of people turn up and offer subscriptions. And, and if you look at the list, the list survives. Uh, you know, there are the rich of the city, but there's an awful lot of people who describe themselves as vintners, as skinners, as haberdashers, in other words, small London businessmen. And they invest £5 and £10 alongside the £1,000 and the £2,000 offered by the really big investors. And this expedition takes place and off they sail to the Moluccas. And to their own surprise, they reach it uh, because previous British attempts to reach it had failed. And just as they're sailing into, into port, they see a Portuguese carrack sailing out and as the crew of the East India Company vessels are almost all ex-Caribbean pirates, they simply jump on the Portuguese vessel, board it, and move the contents of the spices from the hold of the Portuguese carrack into their, their ship. Their ship, incidentally, had already been a pirate ship. It was called uh, the, the Scourge of Malice when they bought it. And in a, one of the first cases of sort of corporate rebranding, they rename it the Red Dragon to make it sound slightly less offensive. But they sail back to London with, with this, all this goods that they've seized and they sell it for a million pounds. And this is enough to get this business really going. It's a massive profit. And then there's a slight sort of hitch. Um, over the next 40 years, they find that, you know, they've got smaller ships and, and, and much less uh, uh, full pockets than the Dutch. The Dutch, this is the, this is the age of Rembrandt. The Dutch are at their peak of their power, and they, they really knock the British out of the Moluccas. They, they even send a fleet up the Thames at one point and start uh, cannonading the British shipyards and things. So the British say, OK, fair enough, you keep the Spice Islands. And there's a little face-saving deal whereby the English get given a muddy island in the Hudson River called Manhattan, which, of course, in the long run becomes a rather good investment. But uh, uh, at the time, it's, a, it's really just a face-saver. And then there's a there's a kind of corporate uh, redesign. Uh, they, uh, they start have a new a new concept, and they decide to focus on textiles. And the world's and the world's greatest textile producer, the world's greatest industrial power at this point, is the Mughal Empire, which is producing about forty percent of the world's GDP at a time when England is is producing about six percent of the world's GDP. And this is the great break that makes the East India Company. They, they leave the declining business of spices, which the Dutch stick to. And of course, the Dutch then slowly go into, into decline. And uh, they, they focus on the really profitable business of textiles. And India, Bengal particularly, Bengal has one million looms, which are producing the world's highest quality and cheapest cl- cotton cloth. It also has silk. It also has painted textiles like kalamkaris, these gorgeous hangings that look beautiful on a four-poster bed in Genoa or in Paris. And by the end of the century, the, uh, there's such masses of Indian textiles being shipped around the, 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 the world on English ships that there's deindustrialization in Mexico because of the sheer quantity of Indian cloth being imported. So this is already turning into a global business. And the East India Company, which had initially been this slightly sort of crackpot outfit uh, run by a bunch of grocers and, uh, and one or two big, big ship owners, turns in the 18th century into the world's premier business, uh, making vast profits and raising the, 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 the profitability of England. England 
um, you know, which had been this peripheral part of uh, of Europe, becomes very rich uh, on on the back of this, and, and alongside it, also, of course, the other great source of uh, of English wealth, which is the Caribbean slave trade. So when you go to one of those gorgeous National Trust houses this summer and look at the uh, some gorgeous a Georgian porch that looks as if uh, Colin Firth is about to stride out of it in a pair of uh, breeches and wade through a lake. Um, I mean, the chances are that if it is built before the Industrial Revolution, that it came from the money looted in India or or, or from the Caribbean slave trade. And, and these are important things that we British need to know. And you, you identify 1765 as a really critical moment when the East India Company ceased to be a conventional trading company. And it it in fact, ends up ruling three of the most powerful states in India. Just explain how that happened, because it didn't happen with with intent on the on the on behalf of East India Company, did it? Correct. So this is the period of great Anglo French rivalry. And this is a very important part of the story. There is a a kind of hundred year war that goes on between about 1715 and 1815. And there are a few periods of peace and the wars are called different things at different times. But this whole seizure of great chunks of India is part of that story. And a piece of intelligence reaches the East India Company that a French fleet has sailed to India. Uh, And this turns out, in fact, to be a dodgy dossier. It's not true. The fleet has actually sailed to Canada which is where the Seven-Year War, when it, when it breaks out, does break out on, on the Ohio. And anyone who's seen, you know, the last of the Mohicans, it's that war with, with, with uh, uh, Native Americans joining French troops in Canada and invading the upwaters of the Ohio. The young Washington is fighting this war on behalf of the British. But in the course of all this, the East India Company persuades the English government to send a Royal Navy fleet out to India to follow the French fleet, as they think. Now, when they arrive off the coast of Madras, there's no sign of the French. They're not there. And leading the expedition is a rather embarrassed young officer called Robert Clive, who's been given command of this. And there are no French. And then almost the day they arrive in Madras, the news comes quite unexpectedly and not part of the original plan at all, that the young new Nawab of Bengal, a man called Siraj Daula, has invaded Calcutta on the pretext that the uh, the, the, the uh, Calcutta uh, people rebuilt their defences without his permission. And this is an excuse for him to show his, his muscle. He takes Calcutta and, uh, and famously throws the survivors of the siege into, a, uh, into a, a, a barrack prison that afterwards gets called the Black Hole of Calcutta. And, and, and many generations of English uh, school children learn about this as a great atrocity that India did to to these young uh, British men, uh, and it happened. I mean, the, you know, people did die. There were far too many people in the prison. It was a hot summer night. There was no water, and uh, a disputed number, but you know, probably twenty or thirty people, uh, twenty or thirty corpses are pulled out in the morning. Well, as soon as Clive hears this, he realizes this is his moment. Uh, rather than sailing back uh, empty-handed with no French to, to fight, he sails up to Calcutta. He takes Calcutta. Uh, he then take, then the Seven Year War does break out, and and he attacks the French uh, command in the north, which is a place called Chandanagar. And at that point, a crucial letter arrives in his hands, and it's a letter from one of the biggest bankers in India, a man called the Jagat Set. And the Jagat Set says offers him a deal. He says, "Look, I don't like Sirajadaulah either. He's both our enemies. Uh, he's threatened to circumcise me uh, unless I lend him money." I will pay you, Robert Clive, one million pounds if you take uh, him out for me. I will also pay the East India Company one million pounds. And Clive says, no problem at all, sir. 
uh, and he goes north. And the whole thing is a rigged. The Battle of Plassey, which is later told to Victorian schoolchildren as this great victory of, of English arms, is in fact a big setup. The general of Siraj Daulam, Jaffa, uh, is also in the Jagat Set's uh, pay. Halfway through the battle, when um, uh, Siraj Daulam realizes that Jaffa is not fighting, uh, he flees the battlefield. He's pursued, he's killed. Two days later, Clive simply walks into the richest treasury uh, in India, which is the Boshidabad imperial treasury, full of tax money waiting to go to Delhi. Uh, the, whole of, the whole of the Mughal Empire is, is powered by the, the revenue raised from this place. And Clive just walks in and fills his pockets. Then he fills 40 barges and floats them down to Calcutta. And when he's later asked in Parliament, you know, how on earth could you justify enriching yourself? He's, this single transaction turns him into the richest self-made man in Europe. He simply replies, my lords, I'm astonished at my own moderation. And this gets him off the hook. Um, and that is how, for the first time, the East India Company turns from simply a trading power that, that, that shipped uh, Indian textiles around the world uh, into an imperial power uh, that owns great chunks of territory. And in the, seven years later, there's another battle called the Battle of Buxa when they, uh, they defeat the Mughal Emperor uh, and the Nawab of Avad, the other two big Mughal powers in the north. And by 1765, the East India Company finds, to its own surprise, that it's actually the, the, the replaced the Mughal Empire as the, as the most powerful force in North India. And it's done that. I think it's worth explaining how it's done that with, with these huge private armies. And, and that's the astonishing thing that I found from your book is that the East India Company manages to take huge swathes of India using Indian mercenaries fighting other Indians financed by Indians. Correct. This is the great trick they pull off because they're still, you know, a small business, but with deep pockets. And the Mughal Empire has been in decline for 50, 60 years. Uh, there's been a huge amount of civil war. Everyone's exhausted. But the people who are most upset by the civil war are, are the merchants and the bankers because uh, productivity is in decline. There's, you know, there's cavalry riding around the country, killing people. And the Jagat sets are, are only one among a number of Indian bankers who consider the East India Company to be the least worst option available. Uh, they don't like the Mughals. The, uh, the Bengalis certainly don't like the Marathas, who are these other forces sweeping up through India, conquering great chunks of territory. Uh, and what happens is you have a corporate deal. Two sets of businessmen, the Indian businessmen and bankers, realize that the other, uh, the other businessmen, the East India Company, speak the same sort of language. They, they know that they have to repay debts on time with interest. Now, this is something that you know, Indian rulers don't always do. Uh, and, and, and what you get is a deal between two corporate groups, the Indian bankers and the, and the East India Company. And the, and the East India Company ultimately wins, not only because they have the great new 18th century military technology, which certainly gives them the edge in the 1760s and 1770s and early 1780s, about 25 years, they have a, a clear military edge, but they continue to defeat Indian armies, even after Indian, uh, Indian armies have adopted these new military techniques, because they have the money to buy better mercenaries and more troops. And from about 4,000 Indian mercenaries at the time of Plassey, uh, Plassey is fought by British army troops, but it's the last battle which is fought by the British army. Everything after that is fought by East India Company troops who are brown uh, Indians. And they're a handful of white officers. 
And as you said, paid for by Indian bankers. So it's quite a trick to have pulled off. And as by the 1790s, the East India Company army is not just the largest army in India, it is twice the size of the British army. The private security force, you know, we're familiar with big companies having security forces, you know, maybe a pistol or some trenches, but the East India Company forces are the largest modern army in Asia. And by 1799, there are exactly 200,000 troops in the East India Company armies at a time when just before the British army is about to rearm to fight Napoleon, and they have 100,000 troops. So this bizarre thing with a private army, twice the size of a nation's army. Uh, there's no parallel to this in history. And and I suppose part of the East India Company's huge success derived from the support it had from Parliament all this while. It, it had a very effective lobbying operation. Under half its MPs were shareholders, and it was bringing in around a third of the country's revenue. And so very few questions were being asked of it. So at what point is it that Parliament then intervenes to regulate it and why? That's a, a very crucial question. And you're right, for, for the first 170 years, from 1600 right up to 1770, the English state gathers, harvests great sums of money from the East India Company, apart from the employment that it's providing, apart from the profits that it's generating. Uh, it's also generating huge sums in income tax and in customs, particularly customs. Uh, and I think nearly half the nation's customs comes from East India Company imports. So no one's asking too many questions about where this stuff is coming from. But in 1770, after winning the battles of Plassey and, and Buxton, and having then done what companies will do, which is effectively asset strip and loot Bengal. So this place which had the one million weavers, which is the, if you like, the, the goose laying the golden eggs, they, they kill the goose. They, 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 they strip the, the, the goose bare. They pluck the goose so uh, viciously that in 1770, when there's a famine, there are no reserves anywhere. Now, you know, famine is something that's come to India uh, many times in its history. And, and, and anyone who reads travel accounts of people traveling in India will, will uh, have come across accounts of terrible famines. It's not something that the East India Company or the British invent. But what's new is that the company has no grain reserves. Indian, Indian rulers know that in, in, in years of plenty, they must put aside grain reserves. And they also know that, that during a famine, they must provide employment. So a lot of the most beautiful buildings in India are built by Indian rulers at a ridiculous scale to provide employment during famine. So the most obviously the, uh, the great Imambara in Lucknow, which is one of the great buildings of, of, of North India off the tourist trail, but uh, spectacular and highly recommended to anyone who, who wants to see fine 18th century Indian architecture. That is built by the Nawab of Lucknow at this period as famine relief measures and, and starving people are given a rupee a day if they start moving bricks and stone around and, and, and helping build this enormous building. Now, the East India Company does nothing of this. And as a result, the numbers have, have recently sort of been uh, come down. There have been very detailed reg uh, regional studies of, of how many people died in this famine. But it's still a million people. It's a million dead Bengalis. And uh, I mean, sometimes the numbers were given as three or even five million. And, uh, and these now seem to be uh, uh, unlikely. But, you know, vast and, and horrific uh, charnel heaps of bodies, bodies being washed down the Ganges, dogs picking at corpses. And this is really horrifying. It's death on such a massive scale and so unprecedented that for the first time you get whistleblowers. 
you get people writing accounts and sending it back anonymously to magazines. Because, you know, there are no award-winning journalists. There are no Kavitapuris flying in to report from the front line or, or, or uh, Raggy Omars or their equivalents. But th- finally, you get reports turning up in The Spectator and The Gentleman's Magazine uh, of anonymous correspondents mm. describing the utter horror of, of you know, corpses, flies, vultures, dogs picking at the things. I mean, it's, and, and, and even today, these accounts, you know, we're used to seeing starvation on, on television and so on. But even today, uh, these accounts are, are, are incredibly upsetting and lurid. So then what's the company's response? They are worried about their profits because it's a company. They now need the land revenues generated by Indians to buy their investment, to buy the the cotton they need to buy. So they send out their armies to the villages. Uh, And in addition to the corpses which are lying on the ground through starvation, there are now gibbets put up in every village. And anyone who doesn't pay their taxes, even if they're starving, is hung. And when the news arrives at the annual general meeting that the East India Company has managed to gather its taxes in full, Despite one million casualties from the famine, the shareholders are so pleased they vote themselves an increased dividend from 10 to 12.5%. So this is knowingly celebrating successful fleecing of Indians. I mean, it's, in a sense, it's the clearest moment when you see the, the, you know, what this ultimately boils down to, which is piles of corpses and then very rich people in London getting their dividends in their, in their banks. So... It continues the same for another year. And by 1772, they have stripped the bones clean. There is nothing left to, uh, to, to, to harvest. They can't harvest any more revenue because there is no more revenue. And when the news of that arrives in London, there is horror. 30 banks collapse across Europe. The East India Company goes to the newly founded Bank of England, but they haven't got enough money to bail it out. Yet it is literally too big to fail. It employs too many people. It generates too much of the country's revenue for the government to allow it to to collapse. So what do they do? They basically buy a 50% share of it. They lend it £4 million. And that bails out the East India Company. But there is a price to pay, and that is the Regulatory Act, which means that the government now overlooks the the East India Company. So from this point, it becomes what I suppose today we'd call a public-private partnership. And this only, the government interest in the company then only increases until finally in 1858 following the great uprising which the Indians call the first war of independence but which the British uh, call the Indian mutiny still uh, when another million people die this time from in action against the East India Company Parliament finally says enough's enough and they effectively nationalise the company in 1858 and it becomes an entirely government run operation but for the 250 years before that it isn't a government operation. It is a private enterprise. It is, it is, it is like Facebook or, or Google or, uh, or Amazon. Amazon, I suppose, being the, the closest uh, parallel today. You talk about Amazon and, and you say the story of the East India Company has never been more current. Are there, are there companies today or in recent times who are just so powerful, who might be worth more than the GDP of some countries, who can exercise their corporate power in a way that's similar to, to, to the, the East India Company, who can topple governments, for example, or even have senior roles in, in government. 
do, do, do you can you see that? Can can you see the ghosts of the East India Company in, in corporates? Today? Well, of course. I mean, you know, you don't have to be a, a kind of you know a, a, a leftist activist to point to concrete moments in the last in the history of the last sixty years when you have had exactly that. I mean, the most famous, I suppose, maybe not as famous as it should be, but uh, in in nineteen fifties Iran. There's a democratic election and Mossadegh is elected. And one of the first things he says he's going to do is to nationalise the Anglo-Persian oil company. Now, when this is announced, the CIA and MI6 get to work. And this is not fiction. This is not a movie. They get to work and they organise a coup and the Shah of Iran takes, uh, takes over and he doesn't nationalise Anglo-Persian oil. Similar thing happens two years later in Guatemala when another socialist government comes to, comes to power and United Fruit who own 40% of their agricultural land of Guatemala, get the CIA to perform another coup and, and topple the socialist government that wants to nationalise their interests. Uh, and that coup produces the phrase Banana Republic, because United Fruit have been, have been making their banana empire in Guatemala. Then in 1977, ITT get the CIA to topple Salvador Allende, and you get one of the most hideous dictatorships in, in Latin American history. All those disappeared and the women looking for their children. All that stuff happens after ITT persuade the CIA to intervene. Now, in our own time, we don't know, still know the full story, but the um, strong suspicions that American oil interests, particularly Exxon, had a lot to do with the invasion of Saddam, Hussein, uh, Saddam Hussein's Iraq, which, of course, we know had nothing to do with 9-11. 9-11 was, was, uh, was Al-Qaeda, full of Saudis. Uh, it wasn't Saudi Arabia that gets invaded. It was Saddam Hussein's Iraq, who wasn't the enemy of Al-Qaeda. How did that happen? At least, in part, it was the lobbying of Exxon. And Exxon, if it were a country today, would be the 14th richest country in the world. So this is not sort of, you know, Netflix fantasy that we watch in the evening to entertain us after our work. This is what corporations can do. And corporations, being very rich, have resources. The East India Company created this system. The first time the company is found influencing a body, a legislature, is in 1690, only 90 years into its history. And already it's found offering share options to MPs who vote to increase its monopoly. You mentioned the fact that by the 18th century, about 40% of MPs have East India Company shares. So obviously don't want to clip the wings too badly. Um, but you also get, by the end of the 18th century, something even more noxious, which is returned nabobs who've shipped home fortunes of 100, 200, 300,000 pounds from India buy rotten boroughs and actually create a parliamentary faction within parliament of their own, which can, which can you know, change, change the votes uh, because there are 20, 30, 40 MPs who are of the East India Company interest. So through lobbying, through bribery uh, and through just quiet influence, the East India Company creates a world for the first time where a corporate interest can turn its interest into the policy of a, of a government and uh, altering, making the interest of the shareholders the interest that uh, seem to be the interest of the state. And that's, of course, a system that exists today. You know, Exxon has, it, it's not, a, it's not a, a secret. Exxon employs senators. It gives them salaries to lobby for it. And other, other businesses like Facebook, Amazon and Google have the same to protect them from taxes. Uh, so, I mean, there are huge differences. Obviously, Amazon does not contain and does not have fighter jets or nuclear submarines, which would be the equivalent of the cutting edge East India Company armies of the 18th century. But in, in some ways, you could argue that, you know, these corporations today are richer. Sorry, are not richer. Are Well, they are richer, but they're also 
more powerful because of surveillance capitalism. You know, anyone that's got their phone on listening to us this evening may well get East India Company tea adverts in their social media feed tomorrow morning. Uh, you know, they, the, the way that our conversations can be spied on, the way we've all had these things where, you know, we've mentioned uh, a particular brand in conversation and bingo, there tomorrow in your Instagram feed or your Facebook or your Twitter is exactly the corporation that you mentioned in conversation. Uh, so this is going on and this is a different sort of power, uh, but it's no, certainly no lesser power. And I mean, you talk a lot about history showing this very intimate dance between the power of the state and the power of company and that corporations can be regulated, but they will do everything in their power to resist that. And I, I just wonder, do you think, and, and this is something that states have been trying to do for 400 years, can governments around the world, do you think, effectively regulate the influence of such powerful companies today, especially when corporations and the polit- political systems are so intertwined? Well, it's often very subtle. And, and there's a story from the East India Company in 1720 that, that in a way shows the nub of this problem today. 1720, the ruler of the Carnatic comes with his army and surrounds Madras, besieges Madras. And he's, he says, you haven't paid any taxes for the last 10 years. What are you, what's going on? You're meant to be my vassals. You're meant to, uh, to pay every year. And the East India Company doesn't send out an army. It sends out one guy. And he says, uh, he says in perfect Persian, look, by all means, we understand that you can invade us, you can loot the town, and you can burn down, take everything we have. But we'll just go and find our company somewhere else. We'll go and do it in Bengal. We'll go and do it in Bombay. And in a sense, this is exactly the argument that Amazon will use today. If you close us down and tax us in England, we'll just move it to Northern Ireland. If we don't, move, if we don't tax us in Northern Ireland, we'll move it to Southern Ireland. If tax us in Southern Ireland, we'll move it to Spain or the Azores or, you know, the Caribbean or wherever it is. And it's the same idea that, you know, that corporations can play off nation states against each other, which is why Amazon today pays no tax. Because, you know, every country wants to have its employment, wants to have the, the benefit of having Amazon employ huge, sums, huge numbers of people in its country. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. 
I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. I want to go back to what we talked about at the start and how the East India Company's role uh, in India has been largely forgotten and our focus has been very much on the Raj. Given the recent debate over statues and knowing what you've told us about Robert Clive and, and actually how he was viewed at the time during his lifetime, are you surprised that in 2020 that a statue of him still exists in Whitehall outside the Foreign Commonwealth Office? Yes, uh, frankly, I am. Uh, uh, the Clive is, is a particularly clear and obvious case because at the time he was regarded as an out-and-out crook. He's an extremely violent and ruthless man. And he was hauled before Parliament, accused of insider dealing, accused of all sorts of terrible crimes. And in the end, he was he just managed to get off some of the worst things. But shortly afterwards, he cut his own he cut his own throat. He was being reviled across the country. There was a play on in the Haymarket, which which satirized him as Lord Vulture. Uh, people knew about what was going on in, in Bengal and the famine and so on. And, uh, you know, often people defend the British Empire in general, but particularly the East India Company by saying, you know, we we should judge it by the standards of the time. Well, by the standards of the time, the East India Company was judged to be brutal and ruthless and violent. Horace Walpole writes, you know, we have outdone the the Spanish in, in Mexico. They at least had the excuse of religion. We have done it only for profit. And one of the things that cheered me up most wading through these horrors was reading the British newspapers at the time. And and the British newspapers are very censorious of Clive. They regard Clive as a monster. People in Britain regard him as a monster. For example, the story of Lady Clive's ferret having a a, a £2,500 diamond necklace does the rounds across the country, uh, you know, in the equivalent of the Daily Mail at this time. And and people are horrified by this. They don't like these nabobs. So why is the statue of Clive there? If he was buried, if he committed suicide, was buried in an unmarked grave and was widely reviled, how come that we have a statue of him outside the Commonwealth? Uh, Sorry, not the Commonwealth, outside the Foreign Office. The answer is that Lord Curzon, at the height of empire, just when the Bengalis were beginning to get the Congress going and were beginning to uh, react against what there'd been this division of Bengal that, that, that created this massive upsurge of nationalism in, in, in 1905 under Curzon, he comes home and it's he who puts the statue up 120 years after, after Clive has died. Uh, so rather like the Confederate statues in the southern United States that are not put up at the time of the Civil War, but put up in the early 20th century when the civil rights movement is getting going, Clive is, becomes a totem for the, for the Edwardians of the foundation of their great Raj, which is now under threat. Uh, and so, I mean, he, it would be very hard to think of a less appropriate figure to be standing outside our foreign office. This is a man who is convicted by his own uh, letters of massive insider dealing, of, of massacring populations, of, of allowing thousands, hundreds of millions to starve to death. And there he is outside the foreign office, the back street of Downing Street. If Boris Johnson wants to nip out uh, and have a walk in the park at lunchtime, he must pass the statue of Clive. And, you know, 
We talk about wanting to have a more modern foreign office. We want to talk about modern Britain, which which has has its uh, you know a different set of values from from those of the empire. Well, in that case, we should not have Clive outside the foreign office. Very, very, very clearly, he is not a figure we should admire today in any way. And so, I mean, I, I'm not one of those who who calls for you know the mass destruction of statues across the country. But I think Clive is a particularly egregious case as someone who was a, a monster, a, a vicious, violent, ruthless, extremely effective, a remarkable man. I mean, I hugely enjoyed writing about him. He's the kind of Lord Voldemort of my book. Uh, and he has this amazing ability to, each time he takes on his enemies, whether it's Siraj Dowler on the field of battle or whether it's rival directors when he comes home or finally uh, fellow MPs and, and, and groups of parliamentary factions in parliament, each time he wins, he's a brilliant strategist. And, and in all sorts of ways, he's, he's, a, he's a kind of amazing man to read about. But he's a monster. And, he, and, and he's, he's horrible. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's fascinatingly horrible. And uh, he just shouldn't be there. Put him in a museum. Put a plaque. It's a great story. I have tried to get Tristram Hunt to take him into the V&A, but they don't want him. <laughs> I think the Foreign Office would be very glad to see, see the back of him, incidentally. I, I'm not getting this. I'm not getting this firsthand, but there've been various newspaper articles written saying that. I mean, I'm, I've certainly seen in the British High Commission in Delhi, where I live, that you know the Foreign Office does try and present an image of modern Britain. You have you know pictures of by the Singh twins in the British High Commissioner's residence. They've taken down the pictures of Warren Hastings and Clive, and they you know they they want to present a, an image of modern Britain, a multicultural place where people of all ethnicities can can make their careers. And <laughs> this is not what Clive represents. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think uh, the Foreign Office would not oppose, I understand, the removal of Clive to a museum. Just, I mean, it's, it's so central. It's so much the encapsulation of a big British problem. We like to think of our Raj as somehow romantic, G&Ts, Panama hats, all the rest of it. And we persuade ourselves that, you know, that somehow ruling other people against their will and conquering them and exploiting them and asset stripping their country and reducing. This is the the most important statistic. India controlled 40 percent of the world's GDP when the East India Company arrives. It controls 5 percent of the world's GDP when the British leave. So we reduce India from one of the richest countries in the world to one of the poorest countries. And that ultimately is the, is, is the simple evidence that, uh, that you know, we were not there to build the railways, to, uh, to create universities and hospitals. There were many things that, that good that did come out of it. I'm not, I'm not one of those historians who think that everything the British did was, 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 you know, was, was uh, incredibly awful. But uh, uh, cumulatively, we reduced a very rich country to penury which is why India today is regarded as a third world country. And it's only now, 70 years later, beginning to find its feet and, 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 and take its place back at the centre of, uh, of the world economies. And we all know that, you know, in our own lifetimes, that we'll see India and China ascend to be the richest countries of the world, along with probably America. But, uh, you know, it, what stopped that over the last 100 years? The answer is British imperialism. Thank you, William. I'm I'm not sure how much the British public know about the East India Company, so I'm thrilled that you've written your book. And um, there's so many points to pick up in your last answer, so I, I hope people you will put some questions to William. Someone in our audience says, I was appalled by the level of violence displayed by the British under Clive and others in India, as described in your book. Given the British white supremacy, and I use the phrase as a bit myself, in the subcontinent and elsewhere... 
are you now concerned by a growing Hindu supremacy under Modi, under the influence of the RSS? Yes, I am. And in fact, I mean, this weekend, I, I've, I've suffered an attack of Mr. Modi's troll factory. There, is a, there are these, these uh, call centres full of people who, who respond on behalf of his party and the RSS, which is the parent organisation of the BJP. And uh, there was a, uh, there's been a big kerfuffle. And, and it's rather terrifying when, when 10,000 paid bloggers land on your Twitter site and accuse you. I've been accused of being, of being both a communist and a viceroy, an imperialist and an axolite. I mean, it, it's all fairly incoherent. But uh, yeah, no, I am, I am concerned. And I'm extremely confident about India's future economically in the long term. I think I can't see any way that India, I mean, it would it would take a genius to, to screw up India's economic rise, its return to the top table. I mean, two or three years ago, it, it, it finally overtook the British economy for the first time uh, since the 18th century. But uh, uh, it's going to continue to rise and in our own lifetime. We'll see it become many times larger than the British economy. But politically, I am extremely anxious. I think the the RSS, which is a company, uh, is a uh, political organisation that was founded by people that admired what uh, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis were doing in Germany, and and the founder of the RSS specifically congratulated Hitler on or, or the Nazis on Kristallnacht, uh, and 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 said we must do what the what the Germans have done to their Semitic minorities. So the the kind of anti-Muslim rhetoric that you get from the RSS has distinct fascist and Nazi echoes. And historically, the two are intimately linked. And yeah, no, it really does worry me. And, and I worry, certainly, um, whether, you know, uh, I would want to stay in a country if it does start rewriting its constitution. I mean, there is, we're now very close to the moment when Modi has enough strength to rewrite the constitution, the wonderful constitution written for India in 1947 by uh, Ambedkar and Nehru and Gandhi and, and, and all that generation of politicians. Yes, I think, you know, and there's also the sensation in India, I think, very strongly that this is a country which has been under the boot, not only of the British, but before that of, uh, according to RSS mythology, certainly, of successive waves of what they call Muslim invaders. And now is the moment. And, and you, you do get this sensation that people, you know, want a strong confident, aggressive country, enough passivity, enough, uh, and uh, that's, that's the kind of cry you get. And uh, I understand it, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a less attractive place to live in than, than the, the old India, which was secular, where many different nations and many different uh, ethnicities and many different religions flourished side by side, influencing each other, mixing their, their festivals together and so on. And, and it was indeed that pluralism of the old secular India that I, that I loved so much. And I doubt, I mean, I, I, I think we're in for a long spell, if, if not Modi, then others like him, um, because there is no opposition. The Gandhis and the Congress Party have collapsed in, in an extraordinary manner. I, I mean, William, you've lived there for many decades. Do you, do you see that there might be a time politically that you might come back to live here? Yeah, I do, frankly. Um, and my, and my wife has, you know, is, I think, more anxious than I am. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think, it, I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm exaggerating. It's, you know, the, the India will continue to be an extraordinary and wonderful country. And, and uh, uh, there are many, many people who do not subscribe to the ideologies of the, of the RSS. But uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure whether it's uh, a place that will be as, as lovely to live in uh, as it is now. Mm. 
Um, we have another question. What do you make of Shashi Tharoor's demand for reparations? Well, Shashi Tharoor, who's a good friend of mine, has not actually made a demand for reparations. He, he, he's made a, a demand for a token reparation of one pound, I think, which I, sounds a bit of a bargain to me, uh, considering the amount of, uh, that, we, that we took from the country. But what he does want, and this is entirely fair and right and proper, is acknowledgement by the British of what they've done. And I, as I said throughout this talk, that you know, I think it is a real problem for the British that we don't know what we did in India. We don't know what we did in Northern Ireland. We don't know what we did in great swathes of the world. And other people do. If you go to India, everyone knows the stories of, of Gillian Wallabag and, and other massacres, what happened after, after the Indian mutiny. Everyone in Ireland knows about the potato famine. Everyone in Australia knows what happened to the indigenous Australians, particularly the, you know, the complete extinction of the Tasmanian Aborigines. We are not taught this stuff. And if you go through a British education system, even if you are a historian at A-level, you can get through the entire thing and only hear about, uh, you move from Henry VIII to Hitler with a brief stop on the way for, 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 um, for Wilberforce and Florence Nightingale. So the impression is given that, you know, we've always been the side of the angels. Again, we have the Merchant Ivory India of, of croquet and maharajas and elephants, and it's all absolutely lovely. Now, the truth is, no, you know, we were involved throughout the world in, in, in mass atrocities. We wiped out whole peoples. We, we, we um, ma- you know, innumerable massacres on every continent. Now, I'm not asking for a, a massive sort of exercise in nation uh, in, in national chest beating but we need to know this stuff and, and when we go abroad we, you know we need to know what the other people know about us and and we're just not taught it at the moment it's not on our curriculum at all and we need to get it on the curriculum because i mean just to give you a concrete example when when theresa may came out to india after the brexit vote the idea was, was current, both in the Tory party and in the civil service, that somehow, having fallen out with our European friends, that we could go back to the empire. We'd go back to the Australians, to New Zealand, we could particularly go back to India. They love us in India, everyone thought. And of course, they're going to want to be our friends now, and, and they probably want the empire back. You know, when, they, when Theresa May arrived there, of course, absolute fantasy. Of course, they don't want the empire back. Of course, they feel uh, that uh, they owe us no favours at all. They're quite happy to do business with us. And if we offer them nice visa regulations and places at our universities and all the things they want, they would be very happy to, to do business with us. But uh, there's no sensation that, that you know, they're longing for the return of Theresa May as, as the Viceroy or the Empress of India. And quite the opposite. I think you know, the younger generation of Indians feel extremely upset about imperial history. They read Shashi Tharoor and they, and they read about the terrible things that happened and they want, to, uh, and they, and they want us to acknowledge it. And the fact that it's only last year that the Archbishop of Canterbury finally went down on his knees at Gillian Wallabag, you know, which is a straightforward massacre of unarmed people by British troops. It's, it's very black and white. There's absolutely no grey area in, in, in there. Uh, it was a terrible, terrible thing. It should be very simple to apologise for. But successive royal tours and prime ministerial tours have gone to Amritsar, have visited the site of the massacre, have laid a wreath, but not apologised. And that seems to me to be, to be, you know, just putting salt and vinegar in the wounds. You either ignore the issue altogether or apologise. And we need to have it taught in our schools. And I've seen succession of British high commissioners coming out, highly educated men, brilliant uh, class toppers who you know, got first at Oxford and Cambridge and have brilliant careers coming out. And again, they kind of slightly assume that they're going to be, you know, loved throughout India because of the Raj. Uh, and it just ain't so. Indians... 
you know, quite happy to be our friends. They, they, a lot of them grow up watching BBC TV series, though so that's disappearing. The parents' generation used to listen to the World Service, though so that's also on the decline. Many of them went to British universities, though so that is now in serious decline since the, the, we, we, we throw them out of the country two weeks after their finals uh, if they haven't got a job by then. And, you know, we, we need to wise up a bit to this. Uh, there are many things that it is a place we can certainly do business. And it's a place where we can appeal to a great deal of shared interests and tastes and histories. Um, but we need to we need to realize what we what we what we've done to that country. We need to realize the degree to which our wealth was built on 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 the extraction of wealth from India. And to that point, uh, Mayur Patel asks, how can this true narrative be brought into the classroom in the UK in place of the sanitized history currently taught? You know, empire is a very incendiary issue in Britain. So how? How do we introduce it within the school system then? Well, I'm not an expert on, on how to get things through the political system in this country. And probably you, Cavita, would be in a better position to answer that question than I would. But I would imagine lobbying MPs uh, and, and making your voice heard. At the moment, I mean, we saw only yesterday Boris Johnson crying for uh, land of hope and glory and, and all the imperial chants at the proms. Now, it, to someone like that, I think, you know, all this is just sort of leftist whinging. As, uh, and, and there is this default position uh, by people like Boris that, that uh, you know, the empire was this wonderful thing. He, he went, started quoting Kipling when he went to Burma, Mandalay, which, you know, uh, is rather like sort of quoting sort of uh, Nazi marching tunes when visiting Auschwitz or something. It, it, it's, you know, it's fantastically inappropriate, really quite fantastically insulting. And it's, quite, it's very clear that Boris and Gove do not get this. Both of them have this default idea that the British Empire was something wonderful. And, and frankly, they need to read a little more history. But I do think, I think it's actively damaging our nation's interests at the moment, this, this national amnesia. The Germans are very good at the way that they have faced up to their past. They teach the horrors of, uh, that they committed at school. And, and young Germans can walk out in the, in the world without that damage, without that baggage, sorry. Uh, around their shoulders. Our, our youth, uh, our kids at school remain totally ignorant about what we did wrong. And, and, and we need to know it. Last question. To what extent are Indians culpable in letting the East India Company attain so much power and influence? Well, there's no question that, uh, that there was a great deal of collaboration. And I mean, when um, I give this talk in... England, I tend to emphasise the culpability of the British and the and the degree to which you know we did terrible things that were not taught at school. When I give this talk in India, I mention exactly what you just mentioned: the fact that the Jagat Sets paid Clive to fight the Battle of Plassey, the fact that it was the the loans of Indian bankers and Indian troops who fought the battles. So it's a far more complex picture, and many many Indians, particularly the Bengalis regarded the East India Company as the least worst option in, in the horrific anarchy of 18th century India. So you can make that case. And, and historically, I think that's, that holds up. And I, and I certainly write a lot about that in India. But it doesn't alter the fact that, uh, that we also need to understand the, the terrible things that happened and the sheer amount of wealth which flowed. I mean, individual in the, in the late 1770s and 1780s, you know, three or four or five hundred thousand pounds a year were flowing out of India into British bank accounts. 
to the extent that you know silver and gold began running out in Bengal because there simply wasn't any left. So much was being shipped abroad. So yeah, no, it's 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 a complicated story. It's not black and white. One of the reasons people like the East India Company was that so many of the Mughal and Maratha rulers did terrible atrocities too. And and I've tried to be balanced about this. I mean, there are there are many monsters in this book, and not all of them are, are East India Company officials. And and I think what you've said is 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 an important point. History is complicated. History is not full of uh, angels and villains. It's it's full of many many shades of grey. And I very much tried to show that in this book. But uh, it's not a pretty tale. And the fact that our empire in India was founded entirely for the profit of shareholders is something that very, very few people, I think, have taken in. I mean, they knew it in the 18th century. There was absolutely no... Everyone understood the East India Company to be a monstrously powerful and monstrously extractive organisation that, that created huge fortunes for a small number of people over the dead bodies of lots of Indians. This was widely known, and East India Company officials were extremely unpopular in 18th century Britain. But somehow, the Victorian whitewash of this that took place during the era of Curzon in the early 20th century has left this uh, the country with widespread amnesia about this, and, and it's time to correct it. And that's, in a sense, why I wrote this book. Well, William, thank you. And I'm really glad you wrote this book. It is an incredible read. It might take some time, but it's worth it. Thank you all for joining us.